following a message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your care. Thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for your reign, your rule, your, your gentle, loving rule that, uh, that shows us what genuine, uh, what, what, what glorified leadership looks like in that it serves and it lays down its life for those that they would lead. And so, Father, thank you, Lord Jesus, thank you for modeling for us that you did not come to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many, that you showed us what greatness looks like. And now you are enthroned at the right hand of the Father as our King and glorious leader. Thank you for your sweet spirit that guides us to be radically obedient to you, no matter what the pressure or the circumstances dictate. Oh, we love you, Father, and we're thankful for your power and presence. Uh, Father, you are intimate with every need that we have, and yet you want us to ask, to seek, knock, and ask, knowing that you will be faithful is our great joy, Lord. And I just pray that you administer to us today, Holy Spirit, by the uncovering of the, the wonder of your word, that you'd plant that good seed in our hearts and it would transform our lives so that we would love you with the life that you've given to us and serve you uh, in a manner that is just that is appropriate uh, for the sacrifice that's been made for us. And we love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Grab your Bibles. We are in the book of Esther, as you've seen. I wanted this historical narrative of Jewish history where, um, man, we've seen God's fingerprints all over this. Uh, we see these reversals that are about to take place. We see that this particular chapter that we're into today uh, has been often named the pivotal point. This is where everything shifts uh, from God's perspective or to God's perspective. And so uh, we pick up this, uh, this narrative, this historical e- event in the life of uh, the, the, the Jewish people now living in Persia, the empire, the most prominent empire on the planet this time, uh, King Xerxes or uh, Asazurus, uh, depending on the language you use, uh, is, uh, is the king of an, emperor, of an empire of over 120 provinces. Uh, from the cusp of, e- of uh, India all the way to Ethiopia, 120 provinces, uh, and he is full of himself. Uh, he is a man that enjoys partying and drinking, uh, has a hard time making decisions, so he brings uh, other men around him, which isn't a bad idea, but they make bad decisions and offer bad counsel, which he follows. Uh, and we have picked up the story here and now, now in chapter 6. I also want to mention, uh, in your lifeline, I uh, just want to correct a piece that's there, is our, our, um, our Christmas Eve service is at 7 o'clock. And uh, this is an opportunity here for you to invite some folks um, in your neighborhood, coworkers, friends, family members, others, to a Christmas Eve service. Don't assume that they have a place to go or that they don't want to come or they're not interested in church. We need to be that glorious instrument of peace, the way that Jesus came into our muck and mess and, uh, and enter into uh, this, uh, this glorious ambition to see us rescued and saved. 
and you can join him in this, uh, in this mission as you do a simple act of just inviting people to come and be a part of a Christmas Eve celebration. Most people uh, that don't uh, have any interest in coming to church uh, might be interested, based on tradition or whatever, to come on a Christmas Eve service. And we would love for them to come and hear about the glorious name of Jesus and the hope that he brings and the love that he has demonstrated through his sacrificial work on the cross that they may be saved uh, from their sins. And so that's the good news, and we want to declare it. Uh, we need you to help invite. So there's plenty of these out in the foyer. Uh, so pick one up and, uh, and give those out. Uh, make sure that they're not just uh, a piece of paper. Uh, I don't think Jesus, uh, God's intention was to give us a, uh, is to make flyers. I don't think that was God's intention, but to put his spirit inside of people that he would transform in order to make instruments of transformation. And so make sure that this comes with, uh, through a relationship uh, that invites them to come and be a part of something that is significant. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we're so desperate for you to write this on our heart, to give us the understanding we're desperate for, to plant it in us that it might come to fruition. Please, Lord, help us to be focused. Help us uh, to understand. Uh, Holy Spirit, give us the insight that we're so desperate for in these moments to understand our own depravity and your faithfulness and your holiness and kindness and that you are the God that, uh, that moves our darkness to light, our death to life. You're the one that, that uh, brings the hope that we're so desperate for so that we can find purpose in our pain uh, and, uh, and know that uh, suffering and sorrow has, has a has a purpose in our life to bring us to a, a place of maturity, but also uh, to a further understanding and, and uh, of who you are. We thank you, Father. Please teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hopefully by now you're in chapter 6 of the book of Esther. Uh, the book of Esther is a book in the Old Testament. Uh, there's three books that back into Psalms, and it's, uh, it's uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, then it's Esther, Job. So if you're looking for that book, that's kind of where it is uh, in the chronology of the Bible. Um, and it's right there in the, the back of the Old Testament, uh, right behind Psalms and Job. Um, so we pick up in chapter 6. Um, Trevor, do you have the handheld? Um, Morgan, could I ask you to read this chapter for us again? Morgan was so kind to do this in class. Uh, it'll be on the screen for you. Hopefully you have your Bibles with you. Chapter 6 of Exodus. Chapter 6, Mordecai Honored. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who had guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole that he'd set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on his head 
Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him out on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested. For Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything you have recommended. Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. <laughs> Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. He told Jeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. So um, I'm sure you were able to navigate through this translation as he was reading another. Sometimes that's super beneficial because we see the the different nuances that are there. Um, But I, I loved your inflection. (laughs) <laughs> because you can't imagine that Mordecai was excited to be the instrument to, to, uh, to carry out the very idea that he had, thinking that this must be for me, right? Uh, how often are we guilty of similar thought? This chapter is a pivot point, and not just in the passage, but in the entire book. There are three feasts before it. There are three the- feasts after it. It's interesting. The, the name, the city, the capital uh, Susa is mentioned 29 times before this chapter and 29 times after. It is, it is uncanny the amount of things that pivot at this particular moment. And it's interesting that it all pivots on a night that the king cannot sleep. It's interesting that it all pivots on the other side of a fast and prayer. It all, it all pivots after both, both Mordecai and the Jewish nation and Esther and her maids and uh, attendants all find themselves in sackcloth and ashes before the Father in a fast, not only of food, but also drink and petitioning the Father for his deliverance. And here it comes. And so it's just interesting. This is the dividing chapter. This is the pivotal point. This is the providential shift in the entire narrative. It moves from all of these things start to seem very dark. There's, we end chapter 5 and, and uh, his wife, uh, his wise men, uh, his counselors at his home tell him, Hey, look. You've got all these things going on. You're great. You're wonderful, as you just told us. And, uh, and in the fact that you're so sad about this guy, Mordecai, who's a Jew, one of your arch enemies, why don't you just have a 75-foot pole uh, erected? So it's, it's, you know, this was done in this culture uh, all the time. We see it back in chapter 2, verses 19. Uh, in that section, we'll look at it in just a minute. In a minute, just a minute. But we see that, uh, that they would... They would erect a pole it's referred to as gallows but this is literally it was a stake that was 50 cubits high 75 feet and they would impale somebody on this stake as a demonstration of what would be done if they were to disobey the king what this was an ultimate statement of of uh of humiliation 
And so the, his wife and his, his counterparts, they all recommend, hey, erect a stake. Make sure it's high enough so everybody can see and then put Mordecai on it. And then you'll feel better. If you look at the end of chapter five, they say, then you'll feel better and you can go to your party, your banquet and be, you know, and be happy. My goodness. And it's interesting at the end of chapter six, as we just read, all of that counsel shifts, Right. I mean, we're talking about a day later, 24 hours. How fickle is man? How fickle is, is man's counsel and man's uh, loyalty and affinity for one another? I mean, 24 hours later, as we read the end of chapter 6, it says, oh, I guess you're done, buddy. It's, it's, it's written in the cards here, it seems, that you're going to fall to Mordecai. Same people, uh, 24 hours later. Man, we are so fickle we are so i mean we look at it with jesus's life the, the final eight days of his life the final five we see that he marches through israel or jerusalem on a as a as a precedence of the coming messiah and king they shout hosanna in the highest the lord saves right blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord and then what days later Arguably, some of these people are standing there saying, crucify, crucify. He's disappointed us. He's not who we wanted him to be. Here's the thing, guys. God is not fickle. God does not disappoint. His timing is not our timing. His will is not our will. His way, thank God, is not our way. His thoughts are not our thoughts, but his timing is perfect. And when we trust him for his sovereign care, when we, man, isn't there such joy? Like we sang a song, overwhelmed, right? We sang a song this morning. This is the one that, that flung the stars into existence, the planets, right? The, the wandering stars, that's what planets mean. And, and all of them are orchestrated in this divine dance we just sang, right? That are, that are sustained by this glorious God, Jesus himself, sustaining all of this, do you think that he can handle the details of our lives? Do you think that his sovereignty brings a sense of comfort and peace and, uh, and confidence in him? Because we know that as our sovereign that he is good and he is faithful and kind, that he has proven his character and his attributes time and time again, not only in your life, but in lives of so many, we see it in the scriptures that Israel, through Moses and Joshua, Samuel, through the prophets, through the Psalms, they are called to recount God's faithfulness in his deliverance from Egypt and his promise being realized that the promised land was a reality and they walked into it because God had promised he was faithful. Can we have the same confidence in this same God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that doesn't shift like shadows, that, is, that, is not, that he never changes? This is the same glorious God that we're going to see in this chapter that delivers his people, that is faithful to the remnant of Israel, and he will be faithful to you if you have chosen, if you have sought, if you have received and acknowledged this, this, uh, this pursuit that God has had of you. We would not choose him if he didn't first choose us. He first loved us for sure, but that we would surrender to his love, to his mercy, to the rescue mission that he has is, he is called us into and that he wants to save us from our sins and rescue us from a life 
that is bent on destruction of ourselves and others, that he would walk us down a narrow path that leads to eternal life. This is his hope. This is his plan. So we see that there's this pivot. Uh, like I said, a lot of messages have been, been preached on this passage called the, the pivotal point. Uh, today's message is called Pride and Providence. I just like that. I think that's just kind of catchy, you know. But it kind of it, it exemplifies the passage, you know. We see three feasts on either side of this particular chapter. You know, Sue says, I mentioned, 29 times on either side. Haman has the upper hand in every chapter before chapter 6, and Mordecai does after it. Uh, this is the point that the whole story shifts the providence becomes realized and, and we see God's providence more, more, um, more evident in his provision for Israel. It is the pivoting point for the entire book and surprisingly the pivoting point is the king could not sleep. So just when Esther seemed to be catching a break, Haman, unaware of Esther's plans, speed up when Mordecai devises a, a, a demise based on his wife and his friend's counsel. So I have some questions for you as we wander through this, through this passage today. I think this is very, very appropriate to our culture, to our nature, to the things that we battle and struggle with in, in our obedience to God. So I ask you this question, and this will be one of many. How do you determine your decisions? How do you make your choices? You know, we see a king that uh, can't seem to make any choices. He has to uh, resort to his court and his advisors in order to get some, some sort of decision made. And, uh, and, and I'm not saying that, you know, seeking counsel, obviously we'll look at that in a minute, is a wise thing. But he seems to not be able to make decisions on his own. But what, do you, what is it that you consider when you're making decisions? Is it what every, everybody else thinks is Right? The counsel of God. In Psalms 1, 1, it says, or 1, 1 through 3, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his, what? Delight, his pleasure. His delight is in the law. His delight is in God's word. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. Now, what is that tree analogy, uh, this prosperous tree that doesn't lose its leaves and, and, and has its fruit in season and prospers uh, as discussed? It is the, the person who delights in God's word. And in the first verse is talking about where do we find our counsel? Hopefully not in the counsel of the wicked, but in the counsel, the full counsel of God's word. So what is your decision criteria? What is it that you base your decisions on? What is best for you? What's most convenient or easy or profitable? By what gives you the most pleasure? Or what about... What brings the Lord the most pleasure? What about that being our ideal criteria? What about what honors God's word and believing that that leads us to his definition of prosperity, that we might prosper fully, inwardly, so that that prosperity might manifest itself in the blessing of others as Christ did for us? 
So what is most profitable? Maybe another criteria, not just that what, it, what brings the Lord the most pleasure, but what is most profitable to his kingdom rather than ours? Have you thought about like maybe, I mean, I don't, we, how many decisions do we make in a day? Right? We get dressed. Do you get dressed for the glory of God? You know, ladies, I'd encourage you to do that. Right? Because otherwise we solicit the affections and attentions of men if we point to ourselves in those moments. Um, and guys, we're not exempt. Our pride runs amok, right? And we, we get dressed and we hope everybody thinks we look great. <laughs> guys, I mean, you know, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, right? Whether in word and deed, these, this should be our aim, our objective. And so in the context of a day where you have dozens, even maybe hundreds of decisions that you make, and it's clear that those decisions, as a man thinks, so he is, that those decisions actually guide and direct our lives. What is the criteria of those decisions? Is it for God's pleasure and for his kingdom? Or is it for our profitability and our appearances and our desires, whatever seems easy and convenient? Because, guys, that's the wide road that leads to destruction, and many have walked that path. Jesus said. But narrow is the road that leads to eternal life and few will enter through it. And so how do you make decisions? By what criteria? And maybe the most convenient and easy path is the wrong or wide one. Is the wrong or wide one. I'm wrestling with a little bit of a sore throat, so forgive me. So first point this morning, how do you make decisions? By what criteria? Are you looking and aiming to please God or please yourself? Uh, Mordecai seems to, man, to be a man that wants to please the Lord. Haman on the other side seems to be a man that defaults to his own pleasures, defaults to his own accolades, and he is consumed with arrogance and pride, and we see that that leads to destruction. So let's break down the passage. Esther 6, 1-3 says, On that night the king could not sleep. Ever been there? Ever had a sleepless night? Ever have stuff kind of raging through your mind or heart? Or maybe just awoken by God's spirit and providence. Here's the king on a night that he cannot sleep. Isn't it ironic that this is the night, that the same night that Haman is conspiring to bring the demise to Mordecai? The same night that his men are hard at work you know, erecting a 75-foot stake to impale this man on. The same night this is going on, both men are, are unable to sleep, having, having very, very different objectives. And it's interesting that God's providence shifts here on a sleepless night. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds uh, this is basically the, the memorable deeds of his kingdom. The chronicles, and they were read before the king. I just think it's interesting that, you know, what do we do for our kids when, you know, we really want them to go to sleep? We read them a bedtime story, right? Or, or if, if, if you're having trouble sleeping, I don't know about me, about you, but me, uh, if I start reading, uh, I'm gone, right? So like, especially if I'm tired. So he has someone come, and, and especially if someone else is reading to you right? And so I, I think it's kind of humorous that he might find the chronicles of his kingdom um, 
boring or bedtime, bedtime material. And it was found written how Mordecai had told that Bethana Bethana, and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, and you can interpret that as secret service. These guys were at the threshold. These were the guys that were meant to protect the king, not assassinate him, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Asherus, Xerxes, two different languages. And verse 3, And the king said, What honor or distinction... Oh my goodness, I have forgotten about this moment. What honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? He saved my life. He told, uh, he told of this, this assassination attempt. The king's young man who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Guys, think about God's providence in this moment, right? Mordecai, unbeknownst to him, is about to be thrown on a stake because Haman usually gets whatever he asks of the king. I mean, this night is about to, un, you know, dawn with Mordecai's death. And it's at this particular moment that the king is awakened and the, t- the king has, tell me about my kingdom. And you know when this, tr- this transpired, this event that he happens to uh, be read to about? Five years earlier, seven years into his reign. Five years earlier, he's reading, he's being read to about this, this moment. At this particular moment, do we see God's fingerprints? Do we see his providence that God is orchestrating his, his, uh, his, recover, his rescue mission and his deliverance? And not just for our Jewish nation, but for Mordecai. And in the midst of this, this is, the, this is the narrative that is read from the Chronicles. This is the experience. This happens to be the thing that's read. And then he's reminded, wait a second. What did we do for this loyal man to the throne? Did we do anything? And they're like, and they remember. Isn't that ironic? No, you did nothing. You were kind of wrapped up in you, right? Interesting. Just when Esther seemed to be catching a break, Oh, I'm sorry. While Esther, <laughs> down here. So while Haman's men were working on a 75-foot stake for Mordecai, the king was having trouble sleeping. He has someone reading him a bedtime story. Ever been there? Can't sleep? Absolutely. Here's what I want to I mention at this point, because I think this is, a, this is an excellent point for this. Um, raise your hand if you've just been awoken in the night and can't sleep. So right away, we're in good company, right? And if we look in the scriptures, we see, we see Samuel, right? When he was a little boy in Eli's uh, guardianship, that uh, he, would, he was awoken to his name, to, uh, to something being spoken of him. And he goes to Eli and goes to Eli. And Eli finally gets, oh, I know what's going on. He says, the next time you hear your name, say this. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Have you ever thought in the middle of the night when you're woken up, and it's truly those moments that are peaceful. Because you know what? We are so prone to busyness, right? We're so prone to distractions. We, we're so prone to doing our will and our way that do you think maybe sometimes that God needs to wake us up in the stillness of the night so that we can be still and be reminded who is God? And in those moments, which I believe are precious, let's remember Joseph was woken up in the middle of the night and told right? Take the baby and Mary and head off to Egypt. And when did he do it? The next day? Right then. Right then when God spoke it to him. Guys, 
I think when we're awoken in the middle of the night, and this has been proven time and time, I cannot emphasize this enough, time and time again, I have been woken to the Spirit of God giving me a sermon over and over again. And the, the subject matter, the, the text of that sermon is always his word. I have hidden your word in, your heart, in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is, my, my prayers are often answered in, those, in those, those early mornings that God wakes me up and, and just imparts the understanding or the wisdom of his word or the counsel of his spirit in those moments if we're just willing to be still and acknowledge that God is looking for a venue, a moment in our lives where we can be set apart for his voice, that still small voice. And so the next time that you're awoken in the middle of the night, I want you to think of this passage, Esther chapter 6, verse 1. And I want you to think, wow, maybe the God, the God of the universe has something to tell me, something to impart to me. Maybe he's protecting me for something and he wants me to, to, to move in radical obedience. Maybe he's just trying to show me how I might be like Daniel, an instrument of deliverance for someone else. And so don't neglect those precious moments. So the king had the record of his reign read. Here's what I would recommend. The next time that you're, well, you're, you're woken up, have the record of his reign read. Does that make sense? Read the record of his reign because there might be some providence in that that is specific to you. I believe that sometimes... Uh, we are kept awake or awoken by the Lord to read the record of his reign. And like Joseph, to instruct us for the purpose of obedience. Or like Samuel, to acknowledge the Lord's presence. So the reader just so happens to turn to the events five years earlier. Just so happens, this is what we're going to read. Right? We use words so often, and I think inappropriately, like coincidence. Right? Or lucky. Uh, maybe even, you know, serendipitous. But why not use the word providential? That God, in his infinite foreknowledge, purposed your life. You know, jot this down, Jeremiah 1.5. Before you were born, I knew you, and I purposed you to be a prophet to the nations. Before you were born. Do you believe that God orchestrated every detail of your life, every facet of who you are, can I pause here for just a moment and just say this? I believe that Esther's beauty was given to her for a purpose. Ladies, I believe that your beauty and, uh, is given to you for a purpose, for God's glory and not yours. I believe everything that we've been given is for the glory of God, is for the expansion of his kingdom, and it's for his pleasure and not for ours or others even. And when we, when we have that aim all of a sudden, the things that God has put in our life, the, the way that we're designed, every facet of our eye color, hair color, stature, everything has a glorious intention. A glorious intention. Do you think it's a coincidence that, that Paul, that we knew in his Jewish name, Saul, later Paul, uh, was a Roman by birth and that that got him out of a lot of trouble in Philippi? So what I want to read for you this morning is the very piece that they read to the king that night when he could not sleep. Out of 12 years of, of his reign, you know, that he's longing to hear about, this is what's read to him in that moment. We find it in Esther 2, 19 to 23. 
And it says this, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, by the way, you remember Esther was a part of the first time, thousands maybe of uh, virgins across the 127 provinces were brought in so he could just choose his queen. And now four, uh, f- four years and 10 months later, he's like, yeah, let's do that again, right? Uh, Esther probably was, though queen, was not even given audience with the king on many occasions as we see later on. He says the second time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, an accolade that Esther had bestowed or at least initiated that, that, uh, that accolade. Verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred of her people as Mordecai had commanded her. Let's remember, Esther's queen at this point. <laughs> she is queen. She, uh, she gets to, to, to have a lot of authority and say, and yet she's still being obedient to Mordecai because she knows his shepherd's heart. She knows his intentions. As Mordecai had commanded uh, her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bethana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the, the, the threshold, security, secret service, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Asuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king, in the name of Mordecai. Isn't that interesting? She gave credit to Mordecai for it. He's the one that saw it. He's the one that overheard it. And so he's the one that has brought this, this, uh, this moment, this protection for you, O king. When the affair was investigated, now they go into an investigation and found out that it was so, the men were both hung or hanged on the gallows. This again is that 75-foot stake. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles. And here's the interesting thing. What does it go on to say? In the presence of the king. The king was there when it was, when it was written down, all the details of what transpired. The king was, was made aware of this by Esther and, and was told it's, it's Mordecai's the one that, told, that figured this out. And yet in, the, in, the, in, in all of that, the king had forgot. Ever been there? Ever expressed a noble act? Ever done what was right in the moment? Ever done something in an effort to love, to protect, to serve, to care? And that, uh, that act was overlooked, not recognized, not appreciated, at least from our perspective at that moment. I mean, how, how do we feel in that moment? Right? Unappreciative. Like is, but here's the good news. God always sees. Hagar said this. He is the God who sees. God sees, and God has a purpose. And w- ideally, we do these things for his glory and his awareness anyway. But, but he sees, and he never wastes those moments. But it might not be in our timing. It will always be in his. So, yet this account mentions nothing, if any reward for Mordecai. So the king asks, what about Mordecai? What's been done? No king lets, now this is an interesting thought, no king should let loyalty go unrewarded. Why? Because their safety depends on it. Think about it, right? Someone, someone endeavors to protect the king, man, that should be, that should, there should be accolade for that, for sure. And I want to ask you a question. Do you have uh, people in your life that have shown you loyalty? Do you have people that have, just been those kind of people that have stuck by your side, thick and thin. Maybe it's your spouse. Probably is. Maybe it's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But as we think about our lives, 
You know, there are, there are often, and I hope there are many for you, but there are often people that have just been loyal. It makes me tearful now as I think about my wife and my friend John and many others that have just exemplified this type of faithfulness and loyalty. I want to challenge you to something. I want to challenge you. It's important to acknowledge this rare and precious relational commodity. I think it's important that we, that we go and appreciate those things and, uh, and find ways to, to affirm that, especially in a culture that, that so often doesn't exemplify this, this characteristic. Amen? I want you to think about that. Maybe you need to pull a three-by-five card out on the seat back that's in front of you, and you need to write down your, your maybe it's your parent's name or your spouse's name, and then you need to pray about how can I show them in their love language how much I appreciate their loyalty. Verses 4 to 5. The king said, who is in the court? Now, let's, let's get context here. Who is in the court? Let's remember that this is in the middle of the night. This is in the middle of the night, right? Arguably, um, it says uh, at, at night, the king wakes up. It, it makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, some speculate it's in the morning, but it would be de- very early morning. Haman's not sleeping. He's got guys out there pounding, right? Building this stake and all he can think about. You ever been there? So wrapped up in your rage, so wrapped up in yourself, so wrapped up in your unforgiveness, so wrapped up in your, in your, in your desire to have vengeance that you can't sleep you're so you're so taken by all this stuff and i it's interesting haman comes to the court now the court is kind of where all his officials would be all of his advisors would be so whenever the king needed them they were in the court right and so he says who's in the court like i can't make a decision so i need someone to help me right and he and he and they say it's haman he's there whether it's the middle of the night or first thing in the morning, Haman's there. I just think that he's just dying to get Mordecai's demise realized. And so I guess the king wasn't the only one who couldn't sleep. It seems that Haman was anxious more than Mor- for Mordecai's demise. Ironically, he arrives right after the king is determined to honor Mordecai and the king is looking for some advice. Is it, I mean, do you see the moments here? Do you see the providence? Like he just happens to read this and Mordecai hap- happens, I mean, uh, Haman happens to walk in and be the member of the court. It just happens that the king doesn't go, hey, what should I do to, to honor the Mordecai the Jew? Because I think his response would have been very different, right? I, I have a different idea. Why don't we impale him on a stake? But because he was thinking of himself, because his default was always, well, of course, if anybody's going to be honored, <laughs> wouldn't I be the primary candidate? Guys, we're not, we're not immune to that perspective. How often do we, does our world wrap around us? How often do, when there is thought of who we could, could, could go out and serve, who we can, you know, take care of, whose needs might be met, what might I want or need, like, it's usually, what might I want or need? Even, even at Christmas. And I want to pause here for a moment and say this. Man, Christmas is about the birth of Jesus. And if anybody should be getting gifts at Christmas, it should be Jesus. He should be, the, be given the gift. How do we give a gift to Jesus? Jesus says in Matthew 25, he says this. If you do it unto the least of these brothers of mine, you're doing it unto me. 
He said to Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Like Jesus takes anything that's done to, uh, to the household of faith, his bride. Don't you, husbands? If someone does something for your bride, don't you take that? It's almost like doubly good to you. It's like parents, when somebody does something sweet and thoughtful and caring towards your kids, doesn't that just touch your heart? Man, when we give gifts to others in Jesus' name, when we minister to others and we care for others, when we get out of the mindset that, that, that everything's about me, and man, Haman was quick to believe that when the king wanted to affirm somebody here, when, some, when he wanted to, man, he came up with a plan for himself that was glorious. All along, the name of Mordecai was not brought up. And when it was, it was tagged with this, Mordecai the Jew, go and do everything that you have described for him. How do you think, how do you think uh, Haman felt in that moment? What? Mordecai? Can you imagine? Mordecai? Before I get ahead of myself, let him come in. So one, one spends the night thinking about how he might honor Mordecai and the other considers how he might humiliate him or kill him. Ever been there? I want to ask this question. What or who is in your head? What or who is in your head? What do you meditate on? Is it problems and trials, worries and concerns, needs and problems? Or, or do you set your mind on things above, not on earthly things? Do you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith? Do you, do you, he keeps him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. Like this, this is where God wants our minds to reside. Look at here, Philippians 4.8 says this. It says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about such things. This should be the filter of our thoughts. This should be the criteria of of what we think about. And it doesn't say me and my and I. It's, It's talking about a more excellent way, about loving others and giving In in Philippians 2, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourself. What kind of shift needs to take place there in our lives? Consider others better than yourself. Look look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others, having the same mindset or attitude of that of Christ Jesus. That's Jesus' mindset. That's Jesus' attitude, that thinking of others first, putting others' needs ahead of his own. Otherwise, we wouldn't be the church. He came and left heaven to take on skin and enter our mess, came into our brokenness to be the the object of healing, the expression of, of restoration and hope. Jesus did that. So what do you often think about? The question is, you know, have you ever been there? What or who is in your head? Another verse, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 10, 5, excuse me. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion against, uh, raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive, right? Every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thing, every decision, every moment, every situation, every conflict, every 
What does it look like for me to obey Jesus in this? What does it look like for me to honor God in this? What does it look like for me to see God's kingdom come? And what does it look like to please the Lord in this decision? And you know what happens when we do that, guys? We walk the narrow path. We, we, walk, we walk in this, 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 this path that sanctifies us. In other words, it makes us like him. And we join the Spirit. And so it becomes a powerful endeavor to see God's kingdom come and his will be done. But we take every thought captive. We don't allow our minds to, to revolve around us, but him. His will, his way, his plan. The king can't seem to make a signal decision without assistance. By what criteria, I asked earlier, do you make decisions? Seeking counsel is recommended in the scriptures. It's clearly recommended in the scriptures. I want to point some verses out to you. Here's three of them, and there are many more. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Where there is no guidance, people, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So I want to pause for this thought. I think there are, like, God's word is truly a counselor to us, right? But then we see that Jesus said, I must go that he might come. It's better that I go that he comes so that the counselor might come, another helper, right? So like we have God's spirit in us to give us counsel, guidance and direction. Let me tell you what it will never do. The, the Holy Spirit, he will never contradict his word. So we have, the, we have the confirming factor of his word, his truth to guide us in these decisions. And then we have another gift. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling church. We have the body of believers. We have people that we know are walking with Jesus, know that cherish and understand and delight in God's word. And we can go to them and not just one, but several. Because if ideally what we hear is the same counsel because it comes from one and the same spirit. Does that make sense, guys? God has given us counsel, the counsel of his word, the counselor of his spirit, and the counsel of his people through the guidance of his spirit. And verse six, 6 says, So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man who the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, like another translation says, In his heart, right? Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Right? Like, I mean, it just says that his default is already right here. Like, whenever, like it's his default to every, everything that's asked of him, every decision that he makes. It's like, how does this profit me? How does this benefit me? How does this make me more and better? And ah, man, can we shift from a prideful posture to a humble posture that God longs to bless? You know, he says, pride comes before the what? The fall. God exalts the humble, Right? Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and in due time, he will lift you up, right? Like, guys, why do we think of humility as being something that's negative? Like, oh, I was humbled today. Man, I was really humble today in this situation. Guys, you know what? Is God humble? Is Christ humble? I mean, was Christ humble? Help me. I mean, meekness, right? That's strength under, under God's sovereignty, under control, right? 
And yet, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 that he was the visible imprint of the invisible God. He said to his disciples, he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God is humble. And so when we have a day where we are humbled, rejoice, be grateful. This is the posture of God. This is the attribute of God. This is a glorious characteristic of who God is. He is humble. Otherwise, no one leaves heaven to come to earth to die in, a, in someone's place that hates them in order to give them the heaven they left. He's humble. He, he was obedient unto death, even death on a cross, for you to show you how much he loves you, to quench the sin debt that is dividing you from the, the God of the universe that in, in whose presence we find love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, compassion, all these things, they, they're not natural to us. They are, they, are, they are a reflection in our life when we are in his presence. We can't manifest these things. Man, how many Christians have tried to be those things besides me? Guys, go ahead, raise your hand, come on. You know, we, we, that's artificial fruit. We can't do it. It's not the fruit of the believer, it's the fruit of the spirit. God wants to manifest those things through your life, but it, 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 it is... It can only happen in his presence. And we can only come into his presence because of the work of the cross. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried for your sinful state. But he rose again. He rose again. Victory over sin and death so that we too might have, as as Romans 6 says, live a new life. We're empowered by his spirit for this purpose. But as long as we, like Haman, think that everything is about us, we're missing the point. Isn't the lordship that says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know what lordship is? It means that it's no longer about me. It's no longer about my kingdom. It's no longer about my will. How many days after John and James and Peter and Andrew followed Jesus' call to come follow me, Matthew, and on and on, how many days after that did they do what they wanted to do? Go where they wanted to go. Do you think they said, hey, Jesus, I got some plans tonight. Uh, it's Friday. Me and, me and the boys are going to get together. We're going to go over here. We'll, uh, we'll catch up with you. That never happened, right? Jesus set the, the course, and he, he determined that by the Father's leading in everything. He did exactly what the Father and when the Father told him to do it. Isn't that awesome? And, and the thing is, what does it mean to be a disciple, a learner, a student of Jesus? It means that we follow him with our lives. And listen, you can know the Bible, you can know the teachings of Jesus, you can know that backwards and forwards, but if you don't live it, it will never have its full expression or fruition in your life. But guys, this world is not about you. This life is not about you. It's about a glorious king. It's about a glorious God. It's about this Christmas is not about you. And it's not even about others. It's about him It's about Jesus. He is the reason for the season. And man, when we endeavor to give him gifts, do you know what that looks like? It's finding the least, the last, and the lost and loving them the way Jesus loved us. You want to have a glorious Christmas? Go find some people that really are in a needy posture, especially within the household of faith, and bless them like God has blessed you. That's what Christmas Christmas is all about. And Jesus says says this in John 14, 21. He said, look, if you say that you love me, listen, I loved my father and how I demonstrated that love was through obedience. This is a paraphrase of John 14, 21. And so if you say that you love me, 
then obey my commandments. That's how, you sh- that's how you really show me that you love me. And then he says this awesome thing that Jimbo always shares with us. Then he says this awesome things. He says, that will show me that you really love me when you do what I say. But then he says this, and I will reveal myself to you. I will show myself. One translation says, I will manifest myself to you. So you want to see Jesus? You want to see a fuller expression of who God is? Obey him with your life. Jesus never intended us to have information or, or, or statements or commands or teachings. He meant, he meant for us to have uh, him. I, my yoke, my teachings are easy and my burden is light. Why? Because he's done the heavy lifting and he's the one that's carrying us through. So guys, follow him with your life. Give him your heart. Give him your allegiance. Give him your loyalty. Because you know what I think, the thing I find with Haman that's interesting? Can you imagine that this was the last thing that Haman wanted to do? Take Mordecai through the city streets and proclaim this is what's done to the, to the man the king delights in on the king's horse with the king's crest or crown and in the king's robes. This is everything he wanted. And now in a moment, everything shifts and he's carrying uh, the, or leading the horse and declaring these things, as Morgan said, probably not with a lot of affection or attention or, or, or good attitude. But guys, you know what's interesting in that? Don't miss this. He did what the king told him to do. And I'm not saying Haman's the, the, the best moral example by a long shot. But you know what he did? He obeyed the king in a moment where every, every fiber in his body, every cell in his body, every circumstance that every desire he didn't want, he did it anyway. And we should be that way. We should obey the king, especially when it doesn't feel good, especially when we don't want to, especially, don't miss this, when it's inconvenient. Because you look at Jesus' ministry, it was marked with inconvenience. But he was obedient to the Father. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that always... uh, comes to its full expression when you write it on our hearts and we have the faith and courage to obey you with our lives. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to build our house upon the rock so that not if but when the storms of life come that we would, we would race to you, that we would cling to you, our rock and our refuge, our ever-present help in time of need. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.